This is The Hindu on Books, a weekly podcast from India's national newspaper on the latest and the best from the world of literature. Hello and welcome to this edition of The Hindu on Books podcast. With me is a very special guest and I'll explain in a bit why. Uh, Josie Joseph joins us. He's the author of the brand new book called The Silent Coup, A History of India's Deep State. In it, the thesis that democracy today is in danger and he writes particularly about India uh, and is in decline because of a deep state empowered by politicians who use essentially the, their war against terror as a cover really for power grab. Uh, I should put the disclaimer in now that Josie is a former colleague at not one, but two newsrooms. Uh, he was national security editor at the Hindu, and we worked together as reporters at Rediff.com. He is now one of India's best known bylines in investigative journalism. Thank you for joining us on the podcast, Josie. Thank you, Swasini. Thank you for the kind words. Yeah. In The Silent Coup, and it's a very angry book, and I would like to talk a little bit about that, but to start with you, you have told your story not through uh, just talking about institutions, but about people. Um, one of your main characters is Wahid, the man who was arrested for uh, the Mumbai train bombings, amongst other things. He was eventually acquitted, but he spent nearly a decade behind uh, bars. And um, uh, I have to say, as a reader, his acquittal, even though I knew how it would end, it really doesn't bring any relief because you are weighed down by his story. And the idea also uh, that his release is really the exception, that there are hundreds, if not more, uh, others who are um, unfairly targeted and then have such evidence planted or concocted and don't actually see an acquittal, sometimes don't even see a trial and are still in jail. So tell us more about why you chose Wahid as your character here. So, Asini, so you know, as journalists, both of us know that the most challenging part is to get the attention of our readers. And I think creative nonfiction writing gives some amount of that power. And so I think, uh, I mean, I've deliberately in my first book and here, I've deliberately used characters who we could identify with and who could take us through the complex web of Indian democracy and who have most importantly because you're talking about here and now and about powerful people and people around whom have inadvertently documented what we only whisper in our uh, conversation so for example in Wahid's case why I zeroed in on Wahid as a writer was because Wahid is also a very courageous fighter and uh, he and the other dozen people along with him who were accused of 2006 train bomb blast in Bombay, they have done meticulous filing before the courts. And it's it's unbelievable how poor, uh, you know, people under such severe trauma could be so courageous and trusting in our judicial system. And they name names, they give details about the tortures that they go through, everything. So for me, for, a, for a reporters like us, it's, it's a goldmine, right? And second is, I thought, He's like uh, any ordinary Indian, you know, someone who just got, got good education, who is turning around the fortunes of his deprived family. And then you are caught up in this Kafka's mess of Indian security establishment. Right. And, and you mentioned Kafka because that was going to be my second question. There is this extremely ironic uh, moment 
when it is the truth seeker, if you like herself, this is Dr. Malini, who's a narco analyst and was very uh, acclaimed in the country uh, for uh, her uh, tests. Um, and she essentially extracts a false confession from Wahid. And you begin to wonder if the entire system is uh, is just un you know it's unsalvageable in a sense. It's interesting that you say that people like Wyatt still have this faith pl uh, placed in the judicial system. Um, but what do you do when even the person who is essentially supposed to have you tell the truth uh, is supposed to glean the truth from somebody uh, becomes the person actually propagating the lie and 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 turns out to be fraud, right? Right. <laughs> so, yeah. So. No, it's crazy. Actually, uh, uh, we have uh, put modern India, if I may say, we have put uh, truth on its head, and uh, uh, and and uh, we have we have uh, squashed. We have we have we have we have actually skewed the life out of merit and scientific temperament. We have uh, we have we have a, we have a generation of leaders who are on a daily basis assaulting the constitutional values who are assaulting our very basic sense of science and scientific environment, who would rubbish Harvard and uh, uh, say Harvard hard work is better, uh, who would blatantly be communal and, and who are also, or if not communal, they're also blatantly, uh, 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 they behave like modern Maharajas. So democracy is, as uh, Ambedkar said, it's only a topsoil on, on a very uh, autocratic, uh, uh, oppressive society. I think uh, uh, I, I think we are in a deep crisis. And as you said, the truth seeker is also a propagandist. Uh, the ruler is the enemy of the constitution. Uh, so we are in a very deep crisis. And 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 I would, I mean, while I remain optimistic about Indian democracy, I'm sure you wouldn't disagree with me that there is uh, every possibility that we could slip into a majoritarian state or a state in complete chaos. Right. I, I mean, and, and you're saying in your book, really, that there is, you know, that there is a merit to democracy. But I would like to turn that question on its head because it's one of the central themes in your book uh, that democracy somehow uh, deserves better. But maybe apart from the fact that democracies around the world have elections, um, it isn't that very different from a majoritarian system or from a heavy-handed authoritarianism, uh, in, 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 except for, as I said, the fact that there are elections. Do you think Indian democracy, as it was, um, as it was originally uh, dreamed up, but even as it works today, is essentially only about elections? Yeah, I mean, we are justifying our entire existence as a democracy because we hold elections. And uh, if you really look at our elections, these are like uh, some of the world's biggest black money operations at play. Uh, these our political parties are uh, bigger mafias and big, big, bigger black money operators than the narcotics uh, traders of Latin America or Mexico. Uh, so even that, that election is the only justification for being a democracy. Otherwise, uh, we are not. I mean, you're right. We are, we, are, we are a majoritarian, authoritarian state where instead of, you know, where the, where the taxmen would visit your uh, small newsrooms repeatedly uh, while they ignore the billions of dollars of fraud being perpetuated by your corporates uh, yeah i mean so we we uh, the but but you know but but swasini as a as a governance model democracy has very successfully taken root in many countries especially if you look at regions like scandinavia there is uh, if if democracy is 
efficient and liberal uh, it probably is the most efficient governance system right that we know right well so so you are saying that there is hope in uh, trying to come back to at least some of the ideas of accountability um, and representation and empowerment that democracy originally uh, held to back to the book uh, you have spoken about kashmir and and one should tell the reader it is not just about events that are happening today but have happened over a period of time you've uh, uh, you know mapped the history of the kashmir conflict if you like right from 1947 uh, you've spoken about the ltt in a chapter called our boys uh, there's the parliament attack of course uh, before that the ic814 hijacking uh, 2611 the mumbai attacks and also more recent attacks so apart from um, the failure to prevent those attacks in a sense uh, is there a common thread in the state's failure to deal with these conflicts yeah so as any why you must have no, i'm sure you noticed that i used all of those incidents and uh, experiences to show that uh, our uh, security agencies especially the non military arms the intelligence the police the paramilitary uh, the cbi enforcement directorate dri etc all these agencies because of lack of accountability audit and and consistent improvement they have been degenerating so you know you go into sri lanka you fight the ltt and and what is the biggest takeaway for you is actually the fact that uh, terrorism has no religion and uh, uh, it's a hindu christian socialist group and they produce more suicide terrorists than any islamic group and you got christians in northeast uh, fighting in the name of bible and around the world uh, but you don't learn that fundamental lesson you come back and in the last decade decade before last i mean uh, what, what did what did india witness you have terrorist groups both from muslims indian mujahideen and the hindutva terror both are bombing your cities and what does your agencies do they are framing some innocents like wahid so we have uh, oh, i mean all of those events and the history of kashmir all of them using to argue that we have developed a deep state which is uh, i mean which is very unique because we have managed to and and and, and thanks to professionalism keep the military under check keep it a political professional unlike bangladesh or uh, pakistan while we let this non military arm of the security establishment and rest of the permanent executive into uh, uh, into real threats to our uh, democracy and and they are now available to politicians from indira gandhi to narendra modi they are available to them for them to intimidate rivals uh, silent uh, critical voices and and uh, do what they feel like and get away and and that's what i'm trying to do when i'm talking about sri lanka kashmir or the attacks like you mentioned about parliament attack there are very serious indications that there may be people within the system who may have had some role in the attack on parliament but nobody bothered because your politician of the day was a is a myopic kerfalo an average politician is intimidated by the deep state your judiciary you know that i'm not saying this the very very reputed judges retired people have pointed out in the recent past that your judiciary is even being eavesdropped upon and 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 we don't know what 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 is happening so the deep state is more powerful more criminal more intimidating than what we have publicly acknowledged only when you acknowledge like in mature democracies like the us or in europe that you can improve them and bring them under accountability right 
after 911 attacks all all said and then uh, look at the, uh, the the invest the inquiry that went into the system look at the way they improved the systems they didn't use a waterboarding against their own citizens they were using it against some foreigners but we do it to our own people every city swasni in this country you can you can actually map our torture chambers you and i know the police stations the secret torture chambers i mean is it a democracy or are we some banana republic is the fundamental question right and you also deal in your book with the important subject of police reforms and why they haven't happened now you mentioned that space from uh, indira gandhi to narendra modi and i should add that this is not a political book this is a book that's really looking at how governments have dealt with this what you call non military establishment you say this sledge hammering of the professional security establishment at the national level has a precedent it is a governance architecture perfected you say in gujarat and has an eerie parallel to the emergency days it is no more a rare sight to see the faceless members of the security establishment descending on a political opponent of the ruling party or the bjp in this case on the eve of an election registering a criminal case against an airport operator so he's forced to sell off the assets to a regime favorite burying an activist under a heap of senseless claims jailing journalists who are critical and deploying in a, no- a number of other ways the enormous resources of the security agencies in the service of the political executive but some would argue and i know it's called whataboutery in some places josie but some would argue this has always happened why get angry now oh no i'm i'm saying that this model was actually perfected by indira gandhi uh, in emergency era and congress governments have repeatedly used it so i am not singling out modi and it would be academically shallow to blame just narendra modi for the degeneration of democracy modi luckily for him he his first grab at power at gujarat in gujarat happened in the post 911 era uh, just weeks after 911 and and he realized that a certain kind of communal politics can be played and in that the police and the uh, other security agencies can be great enablers uh so he did not do anything very innovative uh and and he does, he actually doesn't do much innovative things in life uh, to be honest as a ruler uh he just aped what indira gandhi and others have done uh why am i angry now today because one 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 i just have to write the book but you know in person i've always been angry about these things and uh, as a reporter one has been angry and trying to uh, report about these things uh but i am also angry and we should all be angry that uh, you know sometime in the last 20 years um, uh, you know with the right to information etc indian democracy was slowly marching into a more liberal uh, mature phase and modi just came in and just put a iron curtain on it and he just pushed the agencies back to the time of the narasimha rao era if you, if you, if i may say where agencies are used to create uh, narratives and intimidate people and taxmen are out there you know creating all all or crazy stuff i mean imagine the tax enforcement director agents of this country are busy investigating small time news website operations which annually might be spending a few crore rupees whereas there is enough information out there to show that three or four or five funds based out of mauritius has played very criminal dramatic role in the rise and collapse of some of the biggest uh, defaulters of uh, bank loan defaulters in this country nobody there is no nobody going to mauritius but they are all coming to the office of news laundry and news click and others you know what i'm saying 
so, so I, and I, I think we should all be angry about it. Important point there that everybody should be angry about what is changing because it's not necessarily going to target only one uh, one section of society, uh, but essentially deprives all of society of uh, their basic rights. Now, you spoke just now about uh, um, uh, the 9-11 impact, if you like, on the war on terror. And in other interviews, I think you've spoken about the frenzy of 9-11 uh, and how it has changed the way uh, uh, and counter-terror agencies, what you call the non-military establishment, is able to deal with it. Give me a sense of how much you think 9-11 and possibly some years later, 26-11, has changed the kind of mandates that these agencies have. So, you know, post 9-11 and post Kandahar hijack, uh, so as, as you and I have reported on it extensively, it just, uh, it just gave so much muscle power to the dark corners of these agencies. And uh, they then they went berserk. They, 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 since then, they, they've lost their marbles. They have been faking claims. They have been framing innocence. And they probably, at least some parts of them, have played roles in orchestrating some of the terrorist attacks in this country. And I think among the attacks and uh, things that needs to be investigated if we want to reclaim our democratic credentials is the the rise of the Hindu terrorist group. Who was behind it is a very important question. Was there any part of the state that was involved? Parliament attack. Uh, so after 9-11, and, and as you know, uh, uh, I mean, it's very important to place uh, Mr. Modi's governance also in that context because he gets he becomes a chief minister uh, just a few weeks after 9-11. And uh, ever since that, uh, he has had a free run uh, on the on the on 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 uh, on the constitutional values of this country, and uh, it's not you and I am saying it's not activists who are saying. Supreme Court appointed committees, Gujarat's own police, uh, magistrate magistrates have all indicted his regime and his police at various times for fake encounters, and and uh, there is no accountability, right? So after 9/11, Swasini, I think the the dark corners of her agencies deepened. Uh, and 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 that continues. And uh, I think 9-11 and Kandahar experience, the hijack experience, were two of the biggest blows to uh, a fragile democracy like India's. And we haven't recovered from it. Right. And of course, this stretches across political parties since 9-11. We've even seen, uh, you know, when you talk about uh, uh, Maoist violence, you speak about other places, encounter killings. These are across India states, the Northeast in particular, um, and other places where uh, somehow the idea that the, that society was so afraid of terrorism after something like 9-11, it really gave these agencies a free hand. Now, your book is as much a castigation of the state of Indian journalism as it is about the deep state in a sense, because each time you write about an incident, you also write about how it was portrayed right at the beginning uh, by reporters on the beat. Um, you know, years, uh, you have years of bomb blasts and within a few minutes, um, a journalist would be able to tell you that RDX had been used or PET was being used. Uh, they would have the name of the group. 
that was supposedly responsible, its connection to external players, to Pakistan, and all the rest of that. Um, and I'm just comparing it with what we have just seen in Afghanistan, where uh, just days after the US claimed this massive victory in a drone strike, said they had worked along with the Taliban to scotch and stop a terror attack from taking place, even as a vehicle was making its way with suicide bombers aboard to the airport, they were able to uh, put a missile strike on very, very precision strike on that uh, Jeep and killed the suicide bombers. And just days later, we see this New York Times investigation that says, no, in fact, the person who was driving that Jeep was actually an aid worker for an American NGO, that he was not uh, loading the van with explosives, but he was loading it with water for his family, uh, that 10 children died in that uh, blast, three of them, uh, the driver's own and, and his neighbors as well. Um, my question really, when it comes to Indian journalism, and obviously you cannot tar everyone with the same brush and we are both journalists, of course. What do you think really needs to be done in order to ensure that you don't have these narratives that essentially are just uh, following what the state wants at a certain time, even if, if the agencies are contradicting themselves when they give out different bits of information. What is what, what do you think really needs to be done when it comes to the state of Indian journalism? Swasini, so again, uh, uh, you and I, we have discussed uh, this issue in private, in person and in newsrooms a lot. And I think, uh, I think again, accountability. I think we haven't uh, held ourselves to high standards of accountability, volunteer accountability. I'm not talking about the kind of accountability that the state is trying to do. But uh, if journalism is to be done responsibly, and if it is done irresponsibly, it needs to be corrected. And I think our mainstream media, newspapers, TV channels, none of them have owned up to any of their blunders, whether it is in the in the uh, in the first decade of uh, 2000 after the you know you, you know the during the series of bomb blast the right. kind of fake narratives that were spread and kind the way innocents were framed innocent youngsters from hyderabad to bombay to delhi were framed we haven't owned up to our mistakes or apologized to any of them we have continued with this uh, this irresponsible journalism i, I mean I, my my suggestion if it is worth anything to our journalistic colleagues is that don't be so afraid don't be so afraid that uh, you know you don't even feel like asking a question don't be so afraid that you don't feel like writing the truth don't be so afraid that you don't feel like you know thinking about the logic of something that somebody is trying to feed you i mean it's one thing if you are benefiting from the state and the agencies you know you're on their payrolls making money then that that is something that we can't dispute but if you're if you're an honest journalist Please, for heaven's sake, trust me when I say this, I've been covering these agencies for years. I've covered them for almost two decades. I mean, 95%, 99% of the time, someone is trying to plan something on us. And, and I've also been fallen prey to it. You have fallen prey to it. All of us have at some point of time. But have some, some responsibility towards this democracy and the people because now these agencies are now uh, increasingly becoming a threat to the very existence of our democracy. And, and the, as you pointed out, stories will be planted, but it is a journalist's duty to ensure that they do uh, check those stories out. Some of those stories are correct. Some of those stories aren't. But eventually, the journalistic uh, hard work really has to be done at our end. Uh, it cannot, yeah. you, you cannot count on the person giving you the story uh, to be giving you the That's whole what, picture or even and, the truth. And, 
and that is why we are called reporters right we are not called typists we are called reporters for a reason and and there is also the other thing which is that we should not put all the blame at the doorsteps of the field reporters a generation of editors over the last uh, decade or so have been so irresponsible in many of the cases that they have let falsehood pass through their uh, system of vetting right how could they publish many of those things uh, what, what, so i think the responsibility has to be shared across generations not just uh, reporters alone sure. and what is also stands out is a culture in society as a whole after all uh, we have seen the outrage of a wikileaks or the snowden papers internationally but eventually when pegasus hit home came came out that there was this a software that was e- illegally uh, using uh, very very strong sort of uh, methods in order to surveil uh, people's telephones you don't see that level of outrage in society why do you think that is well, because the media is not talking to society no we where is the media informing it's it's except for some exceptions like a hindu or some new generation uh, publications others are all doing propaganda how many people in the country know uh, know about pegasus pegasus and other softwares were were used by agencies to actively create false narratives about conspiracies to assassinate narendra modi and attack the state etc then their idea of urban naxals if you go back and read i'm not i'm not getting into any other debate if you read the police claims and the evidence it is complete fake i mean i mean somebody has to be held responsible so if we don't hold those officials the faceless officials who planted and created all this evidence responsible this will keep repeating and i think accountability is the reason the lack of it is the reason why we are in in this state of affairs and mind you uh, swasini bima koregao is not the only case where there have been efforts to create these narratives about terrorists coming to assassinate mr modi or others it happened all through the gujarat time when modi was a chief minister and in my book i also documented story from ranchi where in 2016 some innocent muslim was framed as a terrorist who was going to assassinate uh, mr modi or amit shah and it turned out that it was a plant by some local military intelligence or police uh, so, so there is the follow ups are not being done uh, you just mentioned no, okay. uh, josie you spoke about not being afraid uh now i picked this up from somewhere on the internet that in in your career of journalism more than 20 years you've been served about 15 notices uh, for stories you've done and then of course you have a defamation case against you so when you say don't be afraid clearly there are things for journalists to be afraid of a defamation case yours was a civil uh, defamation but a criminal defamation in particular can be a very frightening thing to deal with if you don't have any backing i mean it's a very <laughs> i mean we are not heroes but uh, but i think uh, we are all uh, at the end of the day swasini we are all custodians of what we have inherited huh? we don't own it we are responsible to pass it on to our children in a better shape and if we can't contribute to improving it uh, we should at least not destroy it so if we have claimed to become journalists and earn monthly salaries uh, then i think we hold that responsibility Uh, there will be difficulties then if you are so afraid then go out there and sell shampoos and soaps and uh, uh, make pakodas etc there are other businesses that uh, are uh, available you should do it but if you are going to be a journalist there will be risk involved but along with the risk comes a lot of uh, acclaim no 
you and i wouldn't get so much of uh, time to speak or uh, books to write if we are not journalists so it it it, it it's a package i should i should add that of course the the case against you was for your previous book a feast of vultures the hidden business of democracy in india and that's certainly where um uh, you know where your new book kind of picks up if you like uh, because now you're talking about india's deep state as well uh, do you face criticism that essentially what you are making are allegations and claims and some of them seem to be like conspiracy theories you have news reports that uh, certainly you have a very very strong uh, bibliography and your uh, uh, and and uh, references at the end of your book uh, but do you feel that somewhere there uh, even even the reports that you are now uh, in a sense quoting from may actually be uh, be be part of a bias or part of a propaganda It, it, that chance always uh, is there, Swasini, because we are writing about here and now about events that are not very, uh, very distant in the past. We, but if you look at my uh, both the books, I have tried to use uh, events where there is uh, we have conclusive uh, evidence uh, to argue a certain uh, narrative. Uh, so in the new book, if you see, I end the book where the Delhi riots begin. Uh, not that I have. i don't have information about what happened later but i i said that maybe too much of uh, here and now judgments to pass so i've been careful uh, i would say i'm conservative when it comes to uh, making these claims but uh, i could i mean to err is human but if, if there is a mistake i'm the first one to own up uh, and i would i would correct myself in public but i think uh, at least till this moment that we are speaking uh, in both the books nobody has been really able to uh, uh, show any serious lacune uh, and in the in the last case so you are talking about the in the defamation case which was filed against me by jet airways and its founder naresh goel the fact is that they have defaulted in the court they have ran, virtually they have ran away uh, when i file my written statement in response detailing government file numbers that i am going to be presenting copies of which i'm going to present it is jetairways and naresh goel who withdrew their filing saying that they have to make uh, technical corrections and it's me my lawyers who went back to court and said ask them to file it back so that the trial could we are seeking trial i mean despite being an accused i am seeking the trial and they are the one who is delaying it so i i think uh, to fair uh, extent to which i i know of facts i think i have not been biased in fact i'm sure uh, the reader would agree that even the new book i'm not putting all the blame at modi's dorsets no right. this is a degeneration that has been happening for decades and it's a, and it's across political uh, parties and leaders you know one of the questions we get a lot um and i i wanted to ask you what you think because what's important for the reader to remember is while this book can be very depressing can cause a lot of outrage can uh, actually Uh, seem extremely cynical what you're saying is that there is a better way there is a better path uh, is there a future for investigative journalism and for young uh, uh, um, media scholars or journalists is there a future really for them yeah yeah swasini so actually i'm sure you also agree that what we are living through is a golden era of indian journalism because so much of immoral amoral practices are out there that it's going to it is it's fascinating to investigate uh, them if we could record somewhere and and look at people like me who have uh, moved away from the mainstream 
uh, I write a book and it goes into a second print in matter of one week or earlier than that. Uh, so, so I think we are living through a, a great period when, you know, we are, it's almost like the Gilded Age of the US when the muckrakers came up in large numbers. So I think we are living through great times. And I think also because of the large amount of uh, fake and propaganda and claims on social media and other platforms, people are desperate for good information, well-researched uh, books. Uh, uh, and I think uh, there is great future for journalism and great, uh, great future for especially investigative long-form writing. I think there is, you can make a living out of just doing books today. Right. So is there an, a next book, Josie? Yeah, I'm. <laughs> so I, as you know, I, I, we have a small startup. So where we are trying to now do a series of books about um, the birth of Indian democracy, because I think it's a story that needs to be told repeatedly and in every language, in every form, uh, because uh, I, I think there has not been a, a greater human experiment than Indian democracy. It's so complex, so diverse. So we are trying to celebrate that. We are targeting our first book sometime early next year. Interesting. And we certainly look forward to that. But for the moment, Josie Joseph, thank you so much for joining us. If you've been listening, this is the Hindu On Books podcast. The book is uh, The Silent Coup, A History of India's Deep State by Josie Joseph. Thanks for tuning in. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to the Hindu On Books. You can now find the Hindu's podcasts such as In Focus and Parley on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher and other major platforms. Write to us with comments and feedback at SOCMED4, S-O-C-M-E-D-4 at the rate thehindu.co.in. 